0: Friends, again, it's a joy to be with you all again this morning. Um, Just drove down from Lynchburg, Virginia, as I mentioned earlier, about an hour away. It was such a beautiful drive, just seeing God's creation on full display. Um, It's so hard not to worship when you're experiencing the beauty of the fall colors all around you. The reds and the oranges and the browns and the yellows all around you. Just even driving along the highway, the flickering leaves all around as you drive by, maybe a little too fast in my case, I was running a little late as Dick knows, but seeing the leaves just flutter all around you. is was a beautiful sight, and it was very worshipful, to be honest. And it reminds me in many ways of just the beauty of God. And these are the same themes that we'll be coming to in our reading of God's Word this morning in Psalm 126. So I'd like to go ahead and invite you to uh, turn with me to Psalm 126. As we hear from this psalm, we'll be understanding more and more that the beauty and the glory of God in so many ways just ignites our hearts to worship Him with shouts of joy. And that will be the title of our sermon this morning Shouts of Joy, again from Psalm 126. Now, this psalm, admittedly, is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it has been for at least the last 10 plus years now of my own life. See, this psalm is nestled right in the middle of what we know of as the Psalms of Ascent. Those 15 psalms that are packed toward the end of the Psalter. And these 15 short psalms are specifically purposed to prepare the heart of God's people, each one of us even to this day, to worship God rightly. Now, back when these psalms were written, they were written in the midst of much turmoil, admittedly, in the time of Israel as a nation. But they were preparatory in many ways. See, they prepared God's people in the midst of whatever they were coming from. As they ascended the hill from all around that known world up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, as we like to call it, it prepared them to, again, worship rightly, just as it does for us. These psalms, though, are reflective by nature. They're very contemplative. They speak to the deepest parts of our own souls, and they often speak to some of the things that we honestly try to hide and put away, things like shame or guilt, feelings of inadequacy and discomfort. But I love this psalm because it opens up our hearts wide toward the King of Heaven, It causes us, Psalm 126 especially, to focus our eyes upon the Lord who is our Redeemer, our Restorer, and our Resurrector. Now, Psalm 126 has held, as I mentioned, a very special place in my own heart over the past several years. You might be wondering why. Why this psalm? Well, see, this psalm has often carried me through all of life's diverse situations. Both the good times and the bad, admittedly. Both seasons of intense suffering, just to call it what it is, but also exuberant rejoicing, which can't be matched. This psalm deals with matters of both death and resurrected life, though, in Christ, and it's proven to me time and time again that God never trivializes or patronizes any of our life experiences. After all, he holds our tears in his own bottle, does he not? See, in all these things, the Lord has used this passage of Psalm 126 to strengthen my own personal faith and to hold my soul together when all else was just failing me in my own life. But the world around us does not know this joy. See, the world around us does not look upon suffering in a purposeful, God-oriented way. You and I live in a culture today that is broadly postmodern. There isn't a reason for being here. Everyone kind of makes up their own reason for being here. And this culture that we live in is so now given over to the idea of self-help, not God-help, in such a way that it tries to temper and self-medicate and even euthanize each one of our pains and trials, rather than being anchored in the providence of God in every season. As many of us may know, the idea of expressive individualism that began way back in the Enlightenment era, a couple hundred years ago, it's nothing new, but expressive individualism has become the unnamed law of our land. And secular psychology, which is rooted in the teachings of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud especially, denies the sufficiency of God and his holy word to dress our wounds and to heal our own souls. And so, Psalm 126 this morning for us serves in many ways as not just a balm to our own souls, but in many ways, I believe, a corrective to the church of Christ gathered. Especially in our postmodern culture. See, Psalm 126 teaches us that we need to view each of life's seasons not through an earthly lens, seeing only what is in front of us, but rather to reframe our lives with a heavenly lens as is afforded to us in Scripture. And so this psalm is equal parts reflection and celebration, it's a recollection of past blessings from God's own hand but also of future blessings yet still to come. And so followed up within this short psalm is a sweet refreshment that has been made ready for our own souls. And so as we go ahead now together and collectively uncork that bottle, so to speak, and hear and receive this passage of God's goodness to us, my prayer this morning is that we would drink so deeply of God's goodness this morning and find our hope to be only in him. So here now the reading of God's holy work given to us in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. For he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, this is the word of God, forever faithful and true, and given to each one of us here in love. With this in mind, let's pray now for God's blessing upon this time. Lord God, we thank you again for your word, which is life to us. We thank you, O Lord, for this time now, not just to read the word, but to now hear the word preached over us. And I pray, O Lord, that as we, each one of us, hear the word, that our eyes would be open to see your glory, that our ears would be unblocked from anything that may be blocking them, that our appetites will be wet for you, O God, and that our souls will truly be refreshed by your presence and your power and your glory in this place. Jesus, we thank you for being so good and kind to us. We pray, O Lord, that your kingdom will be made all the more known to us as we see you, Christ the King, with clear and brighter vision this morning. As we pray all this in Christ's holy name, amen. Well, friends, I know I've had the chance to meet uh, several of you at this point, and I know I haven't had a chance to meet all of you. Uh, If we get that chance later on today, you'll quickly find that I tend to be a very hopeful, uh, you know, future-looking, but also very reminiscent person, Uh, someone who's kind of nostalgic by nature even. I often personally tend to consider what God has done in the life of his church, universal, across the world, as the basis of my hope for God's continued faithfulness to his church in the generations and years to come. And we see this same theme of God's faithfulness in the past and faithfulness in the future right here in our song this morning. So we see God's past blessings described for us in verses 1 through 3. That'll be our first point. And then we see a foretaste of God's future blessings in verses 4 through 6, our second point for the morning. And so the message of our psalm, collectively speaking, is simple it's that because God has proven himself faithful in the past, we can be certain that he will continue to prove himself faithful in the future, no matter what comes. It helps appreciate this truth. God has just lined our passage with so many images of what we might call contrast. Now for those of you who are into the arts like myself, <laughs> such as music or literature or photography even, you understand, I'm sure, the effectiveness of that word "contrast." For instance, how do musicians add depth? to their melodies as they're playing piano and other instruments? Well, they play songs in both major and minor keys alike, right? They spice things up a little bit, make things more interesting for us. How do published authors accentuate their ideas through their writings? Well, they use images in their books that juxtapose one another. They tend to complement each other that way. And how do photo editors enliven each one of their pictures to make them pop out all the more? Well, they increase the levels of contrast between complementary colors. It makes the photo come to life all the more for us. So our passage in the same way that was similarly, similarly designed to impress upon us this use of images of contrast. By name, it contrasts several things, such as loss. And gain right here before us. Things such as captivity and freedom right here for us. Things such as sowing and reaping and weeping and rejoicing. All these things are sharp contrast one to the other in order to help us see again God's faithfulness, though, throughout. Now, as Christians, we know that the blessings of God which attend us are made all the more sweet when we consider the specific hardships and even sins that God has delivered us from out of these things and into his life and his grace. The same was true exactly for God's people under the Old Covenant during the time of this psalm's writing. See, the message of Psalm 126 is set against the backdrop of the harshest exile that Israel had faced outside of their uh, slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. This harsh exile, though, was experienced in large part due to a direct result of their rebellion against God, right there in the 6th century BC. And for 70 years, much of Israel, as they were in exile, had been ravaged and taken away into captivity at the hands of the people known as the Babylonians at that time. Their livelihoods, their liberties, and even their liturgies their worship, were all finally just stripped away from them over those 70 years, one at a time, after centuries prior of turning their backs upon God and bowing the knee to false and vicious idols. And yet the Lord, the Lord, in his kind providence, continued to show that same loyal kindness toward his people in order to lead them back to a place of repentance. See, through the prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel by name, the Lord declared to them the promise of God's unfailing, covenantal love toward his own, while simultaneously warning them of the just penalty for their ongoing sin that they were living in and even celebrating in their culture. To them, then, the gospel of grace was proclaimed grace toward sinners by means of the mediator christ himself but also judgment for sin which no lawbreaker could ever satisfy but to them even in the old testament restoration through the means of resurrection was promised and it's right here in our text Now, this psalm is undoubtedly then written with the Babylonian exile in mind. Consider verse 1 again with me, if you will. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Fortunes of Zion. But friends, when we read of these fortunes of Zion, as the ESV puts it, we need to be really careful not to accidentally misinterpret this idea of fortune. See, this fortune of Zion in the original language, doesn't necessarily refer to riches or wealth, but rather to the lives and livelihoods of God's people who were in exile. See, in the original Hebrew text, it's actually a play on words. A play on words in regard to God's people specifically. It literally says this in the Hebrew, if we just translate it right from Hebrew into English. It says this for us. When the Lord turned back the ones of Zion who had been turned back, we were like those who dreamed. In other words, God loves to turn around the turned around ones. The ones who have failed him, he loves to turn them back around. And even the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, uses this same idea. The Greek translation says this quite literally, when the Lord returned the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. And so this psalm is not necessarily about the restoration of physical riches and wealth. It doesn't proclaim to us some kind of false prosperity gospel that God will bless us and give us all these riches on this side of glory. Rather, it is all about the restoration of the souls of God's people by the explicit means of his gracious gift of repentance, turning around the turned around ones back to himself. And so what we discover about God here in this deep truth for us, right here in verse 1, is that God loves to turn around the turned around ones. He's in the business of causing us to repent and come back to life in Him. He's in the business of leading the wayward to repentance and the weary to restoration. And He does this by resurrecting what had been surely left for dead, apart from Him. But there's an element, indeed, of God's tangible blessings in addition to this part of repentance. See, we know elsewhere in Scripture that at the last, God will indeed return in abundant measure all that sin has destroyed. It's not like God just brings us into glory and leaves us there. It's like, no, 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 he he gives us the riches of Christ to tap into, but even those heavenly riches that will be ours in Christ, in glory, as we were just singing about earlier. The glory of knowing Christ and him crucified and experiencing all that is in Christ more and more fully. For though we experience suffering here in this life, we have nothing short of these same riches of Christ Jesus our Lord to hold on to even now in what theologians call the already, but not yet. See, we already are suffering persecutions for the sake of righteousness, especially as our culture here in modern-day America continues to spiral downward and downward into non-ethical oblivion and immorality. But we have awaiting us a heavenly kingdom over which Christ is already ruling and reigning, and he is establishing that rule even now, spiritually speaking, in our midst as the word goes forth into our communities and into our families. See, every spiritual blessing, as Ephesians 1 tells us, has already been reserved for us, and even now it is just dripping down from heaven, like a soft rainfall over our wearied souls, watering us and causing our faith to go stronger in the midst of every adversity. Do you believe this? See, as the late Presbyterian pastor, one of my favorite Scottish guys, 400 years ago, once said, Samuel Rutherford. He once encouraged his own church in the midst of their doubt. He said, "This scar not as suffering for Christ. For Christ hath a chair and a cushion and a sweet peace for the sufferer." Now, bad Scottish accents aside, (laughs) I hope that you catch the truth there. We shouldn't be afraid of suffering for Christ, because in Christ we have the sweetest, most true comfort in the midst of whatever we face. And so this psalm, Psalm 126, rightly begins with both this historical backdrop of freedom from past enslavement, but also ardent hope for the future. See, as Israel in, uh, recounted God's restoration of times that had already gone by, they couldn't help but marvel at the fact that God had already proven himself faithful so many times in the past, and that he surely would do it again for this present-day generation that had been pulled out of their exile. See, like those who had once become numbed by the sufferings and the evils that they had faced, these people who had been made repentant by God's grace had suddenly come back to their senses when God had displayed his physical deliverance of them out of Babylon back into their homeland. Like waking up from a A deep sleep, these people who wrote this psalm were made to behold the mighty hand of God over them, exercising his authority and his power before their watching eyes. Verse 2 and verse 3 illustrate this idea for us. It says this, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Friends, it's here in our psalm, then, that we read of Israel's excitement. Their excitement for the things of the Lord. Their recounting of the when, there in verse 1, paved the way to the then, in verse 2 and following. When God did this, then this happened. See, the result of God's great display of kindness toward them in the past caused them to be filled yet again with a great exuberance, shouts of joy that could never be contained. And even here before us, they still can't be contained. We still read of them thousands of years later. For though these people had once been held in captivity, their release freed them up now to worship God once again upon Mount Sinai. The Lord had restored to them their sacred interest in his ways. He had revived their public exercise of worship of him alone. And now liberty, freedom, had been proclaimed to the captive ones. And the news of such liberation found in God's good timing its way to the ears of the rest of the nations all around them. Our God is so good. Our God is so good. That's what the nations were hearing. And so when God's providence The things that Israel suffered became things that Israel learned. Well, this brings us to a key turning point then in our passage as we come to our second point this morning. Again, God, we see, had proved himself faithful in the past. And now we see here in our last three verses that God will prove himself faithful to us who believe. See, though God had already shown great favor, they knew now at this point that earthly deliverances and their restoration of fortunes were not the end-all be-all for them as the people of God. For as good as God had proven himself to be, the people there recognized that theirs was now a, a spiritual need of restoration, not just a physical one, but a spiritual restoration that ran so much more deeply than just simply a change in status or a change of position before the eyes of the watching nations around them. And so they cried out this in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, I imagine that not all of us know what the Negev is. Unless you've been to Israel, you might not even know what it looks like, right? But this is essentially what they were saying, the Negev being the desert in southern Israel. Essentially, they were saying, deliver us to the uttermost, O God, because we are as dry as that desert in the south part of Israel. See, in light of God's supreme life-giving goodness, they felt that desert-like inherent dryness in their own souls. A dryness that could not be quenched by anything other than God's covenantal, loyal, unfailing love and grace. Now, these people were surely familiar at this point with the prophetic word in Isaiah 55, which speaks to this spiritual dryness. Isaiah 55, which says even to us who believe, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, these people knew that God alone was living water ultimately in Christ himself. Living water, though, which alone could satisfy their dry and their weary souls. But what they may not have realized at that time on that side of the cross is that their exact sufferings they had faced in the past had been used by God to now form gullies within their lives for his grace to now flow more deeply to their deepest spiritual needs and this is why i believe the picture of the desert uh, the negev masada as it's called nowadays is referred to here in verse four now needless to say the desert of southern israel was and still is an extremely dry place many of you probably know that it's where the dead sea is located and the Dead Sea is famous for its massive salt deposits. Years ago, I had the opportunity, when I was on staff at Liberty University, to actually lead a trip all the way over to Israel. And I got to go to Masada and see the Dead Sea and actually go float in it for a while. And as an aside, the Dead Sea is so thick with salt that even the worst swimmer such as myself could actually just hop in there and like, just couldn't help but float. <laughs> it's that thick with salt. But the desert around it is such a fascinating place because it is the most arid environment I've ever been to and one of the most arid environments in all of planet Earth. But it's fascinating because in spite of its dryness and the heat and the fact that nothing really seems to live there, at least at the Dead Sea, you can still find around the Dead Sea, within about 100 miles or so, various spots of... Foliage. You can even find the occasional oasis there, believe it or not, and even citrus trees are grown there. And you might be wondering, well, how can that be? I mean, isn't this the driest place on earth, right? Well, see, in spite of the dryness there in Masada, around the Dead Sea, the Negev, as it's said here, the ground itself in southern Israel has been irrigated And even now, over the last several 50 or 70 years or so, has been purposefully irrigated even more by those who live around there to provide water to those plants and those citrus trees exactly as needed. See, though the desert itself only receives about an inch of rainwater every year, all it takes is for one rainfall to come upon that dry ground and rush over to the deepest spots right to where those plants need the water the most and bring what is dead back to life. Now this is the same picture then that I believe the Israelites had in their minds as they wrote this of the Negev, this dry part, streams in the Negev, please Lord, do this for us. So they cried out in verse five, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Even when we water this ground with our own tears, we know that God will hear us and that he will bring life to us, his people. See, they recognize that though in themselves they have no means of obtaining God's favor and his grace, his grace toward them would one day come down upon them like a mighty rainfall in God's time, flowing down into the deepest parts of their souls, exactly as God, please catch this, had irrigated it out years in advance. That is our own life experience, is it not? See, the mercies of God are new every morning, and His faithfulness to us as believers, even years prior to us knowing His grace, is so perfect, purposeful in our lives. Friends, how can we not declare then that salvation belongs to the Lord? The people of Israel there in the Old Covenant could only do the same. Great is God. God is so great. And theirs then became simply the task of waiting on the Lord. And even sowing dead seed, figuratively speaking, by faith in the God himself who alone raises the dead back to life. Friends, do you recognize that you here at Providence Presbyterian Church, just like all believers really, are in a similar place of sowing seed on this side of glory? you are in a place of sowing dead seed by faith for the sake of the kingdom of Christ here in this part of Nathalie, Virginia and beyond while you anticipate God's rainfall. Do you ever look back on your life, maybe even the life of this church, and recognize that God has continued to sustain each one of you and this church in spite of the most dire of circumstances and the things that have come up against the church, as the enemy loves to do to all churches. Have you known that God has been so faithful to you? Now, admittedly, I've only been here once before, a couple of months ago, but even spending time with several of you afterwards, at lunchtime and all, it was such an encouraging time because I got to see that God has indeed shaped you and sanctified you. And is continuing to shape you and sanctify you into the beautiful bride of Christ that you are before Him. But I also can imagine that there have been so many times, even here at Providence, where God has brought about times of suffering, even hardships to sanctify you, and things that would be so difficult that you have weathered, all for the purpose of knowing His grace and His sufficiency in Christ more and more as you cling not to your own self, but to him. See, in principle, each one of life's trying circumstances seems in many ways to carve out a bit of our own souls, don't they? They kind of seem to take away something from us when we're hurt and beaten down by the things in this world. But for those of us who have suffered all kinds of various losses, we know that a part of us is not able to be experienced again in this life. We've lost things, haven't we? Things that we can't get back in this life. And so in many ways, like running your fingers through tender soil, which leaves a trail in its place, or like tilling several lines into the ground around you, for those of you who might do landscaping or even farming here in this area, we often look back at our lives in times of sorrow as being less than perfect and ideal. And yet... It is precisely that same soil that has been dug into that God has made tender and purposely dug into it for the very work of Christ, the Master Gardener, to go to work in our lives and effect true repentance and true life and joy in Him. See, we as God's beloved then are never left for dead no matter what you've experienced. Rather, we are like those who have been planted beside streams of living water, purposed to bear fruit, God's fruit, in just the right season, as Psalm 1 tells us. See, though we often find our circumstances met by unfavorable conditions or ailments or struggles of various kinds, the soil that God places each one of us in as believers has been carefully crafted by his own hand to water us in his timing in the exact way that he has planned. And though we do not fully understand why we go through the circumstances that seem to mount up against us, let alone the church of Christ here in this age, we as believers would do so well to accommodate ourselves, in the words of the Puritan Matthew Henry, to all the dispensations of providence and to be so suitably affected with them. For, as he goes on to say, Matthew Henry, the harps are never more melodiously tunable than after such a melancholy disuse. The long want of mercies greatly sweetens their return. So as a final point of application, what then are the gullies that you are aware of in your own life that God has carved out? What are those gullies? What are the conditions or the personal experiences that you have carried in the past, maybe even are carrying now, and have felt weighed down by even in recent times? But on the flip side, how might we then, as the church, being more and more aware of these gullies that have been carved out, become all the more the family of God that we are in Christ? The family of God that Desires to seek to care for one another, even especially in light of the hardships. The prayers, even that we were reading earlier, as he had shared with us. Well, verses five through six gives us this hopeful promise in the very word of God. It says this that those who sow in tears shall do what? Amen. Reap in joy. Amen. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall, that's a promise, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What a heavenly foretaste, right? See, the irony of all this talk about soil and weather conditions and even sowing seed here in faith, that these last two verses of our passage talk about, Is that every single part of this process of seeing God's bounty and growth in our lives, seeing grace have its way in us, is entirely contingent upon the author and giver of life, Himself. God alone is the sovereign one in every part of this process, isn't He? He's the sovereign one in the act of tilling and cultivating the ground of our lives. He's the sovereign one in planting the seeds which are as good as dead on their own. He's the sovereign one in bringing proper sunlight and the weather conditions. He's the sovereign one in bringing forth life bursting from those dead seas in his timing. And he is the sovereign one in maintaining the healthy growth of that young and volatile plant. And bringing that plant all the way to fruition and to harvest at the last. Friends, the Spirit of God, then, is the one who gives growth and life and vitality, and Christ alone is the one who proves himself in these ways, even in our own lives, to be our resurrection and our life. For he is the true vine of whom we are the branches, and he is the righteous branch into whom we as believers have been grafted. For though Christ died for us upon the cross, as we know in the gospel, he was raised bodily from the dead so that we might have life everlasting in him. So as we close, know then that our God is not apathetic toward us as church, nor toward any of you as individuals, for you're his beloved child. No matter what station you might find yourself in, even this morning, maybe in the season of life, in your relationships, in your work, whatever it might be, Pray with boldness and confidence that you may receive God's grace and mercy to help you in time of need. Know that God has dealt bountifully with you in love and that he has purposed every one of your days to display his loving kindness toward you in Christ with steady streams of mercy that flow down into the deepest parts of your life. And by God's grace, recognize the ways in which the implanted word, the word of God, the word of Christ himself, is so much like a seed within your soul that will, will bear fruit in his good timing. For joy that is truly endless is truly found in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we truly have life in you and in you alone. We thank you, O Lord, for giving us your Son in the fullness of time, being born under woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who are under the curse of the law, by becoming sin, our sin by name even, and bearing that upon the cross, paying the just penalty for our sin in full, and so giving us life to all those who call upon your name and obey the gospel by believing and repenting of our sin. We thank you, O Lord, that we belong to you, that we are your people who are redeemed, restored, and at the last will be resurrected bodily to stand before you and rejoice forevermore with shouts of joy. As we pray all this in your holy and almighty name, amen.